Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm here with Laura, uh, Laura Kudari. She's a trauma practitioner and a writer. And I was introduced to her through her writing. And we're going to talk today about her work and her background, which is really unique. She has done a lot of work with strength training and a lot of um, really a deep dive into trauma research. And the blending of the two is fascinating to me. And Laura is um, a really kind of a generous writer, very clear, very smart, and really accessible. And um, she's really kind of changed and opened my own view on how healing, how approaches to fitness and wellness can be so wide that they can really kind of accommodate and incorporate all the different parts of us. And so that's why I wanted to talk to her this morning. Um, so without further ado, um, Laura, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of your background. So you got into strength training, am I right, because of a back pain you had? Yeah, a long time ago. Um, when I was about 20, yes, 20 years old, my back went out. Maybe I was 21, but I was in college. Um, and I uh, I didn't really, you know, I it went, it went out really bad. I My mother wound up I was visiting my mother on a trip when it really seized up and she could see how bad it was. She rushed me to uh, an orthopedic. He was actually a surgeon, which was interesting because he didn't recommend surgery. He said that I should get stronger, um, which thank God, because you know, nobody wants to do extra surgery. Um, and I, you know, and he gave me a script for PT and I went back to my college town and I did PT and I wanted to have nothing to do with strength training or exercise. I hated all of those things. So I did just enough PT to like move, move around the world and go to class and do those sorts of things. It was many years. I actually didn't come back to New York City um, to live until I was 27. And when I came back to New York City, my mom was like, please she really wanted me to do something. She was tired of watching me like limping around, you know, and I really, I mean, I really had limited mobility for somebody so young. Um, and so I started, I met, I agreed to meet her trainer who I was terrified of. Um, but he was the nicest person. Uh, I realized my mom was like, I want you to meet Big Ed. I was like, Big Ed? No, I'm not meeting Big Ed. Um, and Big Ed is really big. Um, and one of the kindest people I know. And, um, he specializes really in helping now, you know, he's really realized that's his specialty is helping people get out of pain and stay out of pain. But, you know, we just started working out together. I started strength training and it was many years before I fell in love with it. I just showed up and did it. Um, because it, it, it was something that was making the pain go away. Eventually I could not be in pain. And then even after a little while, I could take a week off when I was on vacation and stay not in pain, which was just after, you know. I mean, I spent so long with back pain. Um, that was, it was just worth it, even if I didn't really necessarily like working out. I liked Ed, and I liked not hurting. And it wasn't for many years until I found, um, I kept getting stronger and stronger, and I realized I wanted to try Olympic weightlifting, which was not, it was kind of early for CrossFit, so people weren't, women weren't really doing this a lot. I was like, I want to do that. 
For that, you have to get really strong. <laughs> um, but it was worth it. Like, that was my joy. And so that was my entrance as a strength sports. Um, but then I had it. And then doing the training the way I approach it now came after another back injury that was not related to the gym uh, directly. So that's the path of strength training that I took. So it sounds like you were kind of um... – well, it certainly sounds like you were reluctant to try it, but it even took a while for you to kind of find your own fit and your own way of what worked, what works for you. So now, what is the dynamic that works for you, or what is the kind of uh, activity in the gym that works for you now? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. You know, it there is um, there's sort of two things that go on. There's the one thing that I always return to, which is barbell sports. And there is, and that, that has to do with what I was talking about, the like joy, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of people think it's like, when they hear joyful movement, they're probably not thinking deadlifting a tremendous amount of weight. But for me, right, that's what resonates with me is feeling into how strong I can be, right? Um, that's what makes me super happy. That saying, you know, that said, uh, Barbell training is inherently limiting in how much moving you're going to do because you've got this bar that keeps you moving kind of. Basically, I move up and down in like this bilateral up and down movement all the time. That's what a bench press is. That's what a deadlift is. That's what a squat is. And that's also what Olympic weightlifting is. And I love that. But as I have kind of progressed and healed and become more open to just being um, involved with exercise and fitness, I have found there are, I also go to other things and that's what always shifts. Like I will do some agility training with a performance coach because I'm not fast. I'm not a fast runner and I'm never going to be super fast. I could be faster. And so that's a fun skill to work on or yoga. Um, I didn't, I had a regular practice and then I went away from yoga for many years. Uh, now I kind of incorporate it into a lot of what I do and sometimes it's just yoga. So what I always return to, what really makes me happy and feel good and grounded and where I focus my practice, like my more like healing practice is going to be in strength training, usually with a barbell. But I like to explore all these other things now, but mm. it took time to get there. Um. Laura, I'd like to hear, so, like, of these kind of different parts of your life and how they've kind of come together. So, you know, the word trauma uh, is used probably pretty widely, and probably people mean different things when they use the word. Sometimes people describe, like, a bad trip to the supermarket as traumatic, you know? Like, how do you use the word trauma, you know, based on your training and education, and um, so people can better understand it? Sure. Um, yeah, a lot of people, I think, I mean, a bad trip to the grocery store could potentially be traumatic. <laughs> um, I think uh, trauma for me is totally separate from the, the thing that happens, right? So, you know, a car accident, it can be traumatic, right? Um, that car accident is important in some certain concept, like in certain conversations, you know, you're trying to get help. Um, but really what's happened is something came on too much, too fast. Your nervous system was overwhelmed. It didn't have enough time to process it. And now you have this unprocessed, 
um, you know, autonomic nervous system response hanging out in your body, right? And it's easily triggered by certain things. Um, and, you know, one thing like uh, the car accident was so, it's such an interesting example to me because I think a lot of people are, you know, there are a lot of car accidents. We have them. And a lot of the time, you know, fortunately we walk away without really any injuries, you know, fender benders and that kind of stuff. Um, and you don't even realize, like, I, you know, I, I had been in one that was a bad accident, but everybody walked away. The cars were not okay. Um, but everyone walked away fine in the end, right? Um, and I had been the driver and for a decade, anytime I was in the car, I see what I'm doing, I see my hands, I would like go to step on the brake whenever, even if I wasn't driving, you know? which was very annoying to the driver a lot of the time to see this constant motion and their purple vision of me breaking. Um, and that, that little thing, it wasn't the end of the world. It was kind of annoying. Um, but that actually in my definition of trauma sort of exemplifies an example of trauma. Right. And I, I did wind up doing some work around it and I don't do that anymore, which is cool. You know, it wasn't um, a big deal. But it shows you how when you have these sort of things that happen where you get overwhelmed, you know, the moment of impact, I was overwhelmed and like never finished my trauma response, which actually we, I realized probably wasn't breaking, but actually hitting the gas. My body was still trying to do it over and over and over again. Uh, and there are ways that that can become, lead to injury or chronic pain or, you know, sometimes it's behaviors that um, can really derail life, right? Even when they're small. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm also it it seems to me that you know the, um people who like experience say persistent and regular like kind of levels of stress, maybe high levels of stress, how do you differentiate or how do you know either with your mm -hmm. clients that you've worked with or you know how do people differentiate between when something and maybe it's not a, a clean di distinction but between like experiencing stress and experiencing like some kind of resonance of trauma or something. Right. Yeah. Chronic stress. Um, and there, there is a difference. Right? So you're not going to have this sort of one obvious tick. Um, it's not going to be, they're not, you're not necessarily talking about, um, it, look, it does look different, but it's actually can be really, it can be really kind of crippling and sort of limit a person's tolerance for stress. If you already have so much stress and you're walking around stressed, there's only so much more stress you can take, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's often thought of as more like complex trauma or chronic stress. And I definitely handle those things differently with a client. Um, there's not so much processing to do, but mm, I don't know if that's really the right word. We're not talking about an acute incident, right? We're talking about like life in general and increasing one's capacity for tolerance, uh, like for stress rather. Um, the window of tolerance is why I said tolerance. I don't know if you know that model from Dan Siegel. 
Yes, yeah, but do you want to just kind of briefly yeah. mention it? Yeah. Definitely. So this is a model that is often used by trauma practitioners to sort of demonstrate um, how much stress sort of a person can take. Everybody's window of tolerance is different, and everybody's window of tolerance can open and close over the course of their life. Um, and I think that's really important to remember. So if you picture like a window that's open, that's your window of tolerance for stress. That's how much stress and well, arousal you can handle in a certain day. Um, because our bodies, even on a totally peaceful, nothing stressful happening throughout the day, our nervous systems are aroused and also calm down, right, over the course of the day. Then maybe you have things like a stressful phone call. You're going to be even more aroused. Um, as you're approaching the top and bottom of that window, now you're starting to approach like an overwhelming state. And that's where you start to get these, um, where you're starting to approach too much, right? And that's what we're talking about. Trauma is too much too soon, like too much to process. And you start seeing things like hyper arousal or hypo arousal. Um, so for me, working in a gym environment, this is really important because the whole point of strength training is literally stress overload in order to drive adaptation. So when people realize you don't need to overload yourself so much you're overwhelmed. It's a very scary sort of idea of like stress overload. It's actually like just playing with that edge um, because once the system is overwhelmed, it's not gonna process anything. So if somebody has a very narrow window of tolerance or they might have a big window of tolerance but so much stress in their life that they're already near those edges, you have to be really mindful when you're working with um, any sort of thing that stresses the system, whether that's processing trauma and talk therapy, working out in the gym, um, learning to swim, uh, <laughs> which can be pretty scary. Um, you know, any of these things, you have to sort of be able to recognize I think it's really important for people to be able to recognize for themselves and also for people who are working with clients to be able to recognize like, oh, these are some signs that my client is getting near the edge of their window of tolerance. Because once they're outside of that, you're overwhelmed. Client's not going to take anything away from it. Um, and actually, they're, they're stressing them out more than helping. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, I actually had never really considered sort of like the really like exacting parallel between like lifting weights and this window of tolerance that like you, it it wouldn't help anyone if I tried to double my bench press from one week to the next. Right. Right. So you're kind of like, you're working with the edge, but there's clearly a point at which like um, overloading oneself would lead to kind of like a results you don't want, you know? Well, that's how I wound up injured the second time around was, um, and how I sort of came into any of this work myself was mm -hmm. I did one of those, my trauma, I had experienced an acute trauma that had nothing to do with the gym. And, but here was this place where I felt in control and I felt strong and it was my thing. Like, and I was in this kind of perpetual fight and sort of move, switch back and forth between fight and collapse over and over again. So I'd go into the gym and I would train really hard and I would not allow myself, and this is something I talk a lot about with my work, I would not allow any time for recovery. 
Um, I was training in powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, and karate. I was training 10 times a week. <laughs> and so wow. I over, I just, I overdid my system. And what happens, I could feel back pain coming on. And I was like, oh, I just need to activate my glute. <laughs> I was like, and basically, I thought I could train it away mm-hmm. um, until I was completely, I uh, woke up on November 1st that year with uh, such severe sciatica, I couldn't move parts of my left lower leg. So, and, and, and that happens there. And that's something that I think people don't realize whether or not, it doesn't have to be that extreme, but like if you're constantly um, in a state of like this aggression, right? You're kind of stuck in a fight response. You can do these things that, I mean, it gets celebrated in fitness culture. And that was what was such a big deal about my work. It was like, you can't, Everybody thought it was great. Oh, Laura's like a machine. Look at her. You know, and I looked so fit. My doctor was so happy. I mean, I was just like lean and my blood work was coming back. (laughs) But like, I was not well. Like I wasn't, I actually wasn't overall healthy. And, you know, the fact that I could just override all of my body's signals, that's not really a good thing. Like you need to learn to listen to your signals. And I think I would have steadily progressed and been a much better athlete if I could take a break. But mm. the trauma response was to never stop. Right. So. Um, Laura, could you kind of give sort of some, I know you're taking a sabbatical right now. You're taking a writing sabbatical, but in all the work you've done with, women around strength training and especially women who've experienced trauma, like, could you either give sort of like um, an example of like what some results were that one of your clients found or sort of like what it might look like of you kind of working with them? Like, what would that experience look like to give people a picture, you know? Yeah, um, sure. I mean, the experience, what it looked like, actually what it looks like if you were in the same gym as us, it would look like a strength training thing maybe we would be doing some weird things because we like why is that client writing at the end of their session Um, (laughs) I do give my clients journals uh and encourage them to make notes of things that come up um and I also am a Reiki practitioner so I have had clients who have requested Reiki at the end of the session to help with recovery so Mm -hmm. Reiki in the gym is a little unusual but other than that um you know depending on the client's experience level, interest, and like kind of fitness goals, because there, nobody comes to me to train in the gym that doesn't want, you know, I want to be stronger. Generally what I almost, what I, what I almost always got was a general, I want to be stronger and I want to feel like I can go into like more like group training environments and not get hurt. Mm. So what they're talking about is, you know, becoming a better mover and also becoming in tune with being able to like really make calls, learn how to make calls for their own body, learn how to ignore the instructor if the instruction is not going to be good for them. Like, so this boundary stuff. Um, And also learning like how to, you know, we were talking about like learning when you're at that edge and how to, play with that edge also what to do if you do overwhelm yourself like you you take care of yourself and you recover these things happen i still do it sometimes um 
So the way we make that happen is a combination of things. There's first, there's the technical programming. What are the movements we're doing? Um, and for everybody, I'm always working on also increasing their capacity for stress because that is part of training, strength and conditioning training in general. Um, but I'm really mindful of even not just when I write the program, but when I'm in the moment, like, okay, how is this client doing today? Because you're going to come in in different states every day, right? Some days are just different than others. Some days it's raining and you're on a crowded subway. No one's going into the gym now and taking the subway. Uh, when I was working at the time, that's what was happening. Um, and so their days look different, right? Are they coming after work? How was their work day? Are they coming before work? Um, you know, those are all factors. So to just really pay attention and look for signals of uh, approaching, approaching that threshold. So that's what I'm doing, which you might not be able to tell from seeing it. And then it's a, a constant conversation with the client, encouraging them to be in conversation with themselves. So um, cueing clients to feel, we, I really don't like mirrors. I try to use gyms without mirrors because I want clients to do the movement from feeling it. So if we're doing a squat, I'm gonna cue them to come up from the bottom by like squeezing their glutes and really feeling what that feels like as they come up. Now, and I mentioned that because for a lot of people that sort of, once you're getting into things like glutes and pelvic floor muscles and stuff, that can be pretty triggering for a lot of people. A lot of people hold a lot of stuff in their trunk in general. So all of that bracing. So really part of it is paying attention, like what comes up if, if you start to realize like, oh, when I brace like that, my whole body kind of gets unusually tense. Like I can't relax afterwards. Well, there's a, there's something there. As a trainer, it's not my role to process that. Um, I can, you know, I use SE to inform my practice and part of the reason I'm going back to school is to have licensure to help people process. SE is, can you say what SE oh, is? Oh yes, I'm sorry. Yes. Somatic experiencing, yeah. which is a trauma processing modality is commonly used by talk therapists, although it's used across, there are body workers and all sorts of people who use it. Um, and it's a modality that really brings the body into treatment. Um, and so I can encourage my clients to really listen and be in conversation with what's coming up in their body. And that's actually why they write, because I ask them to write it I, um, so they can process however they do. You know, I usually because I specialize in working with people with trauma, I encourage people to be in some form of counseling. It doesn't have to be traditional talk therapy, um, but I like them to have somebody who is in their life, who it's in their scope to uh, do some processing. With them. Hmm. So, and I guess, and then I, I really tailor the movements to what my clients' needs are. I may notice a lot of the time with trauma, well, all the time with trauma, there's inherently a breach of boundary. So a lot of the time there has to be boundary work. Um, and some of that is movement-based, actually doing pushing um, and like different types of pushing things and really feeling what it feels like to push something away 
mm. really be in it. Um, sometimes it's more about just reinforcing this idea. Everything's an invitation. My clients can say no to me. I know a lot of trainers have no excuses. And I'm not, that's not my jam. <laughs> like I'm like actually, first of all, yeah, it's not an excuse. It's, they don't, for whatever, they don't have to do anything. Um, I might want to have a conversation about it to get to know why. Um, but sort of this constant conversation and practicing saying to me, no, I don't, you know, if they don't want to do it, like listening, knowing how to recognize, oh, okay, this is what my body does when it doesn't want something. Maybe it pulls back or my hands go up or whatever. So talking about that, I might notice maybe the client says yes, but they put their hands up. I may point that out and say, I know you, I know you said you want to do that, but I just want to double check because you put your hands up, which sort of says to me, like, actually, no. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. Um, so just really working on building those things back in and learning how to pay attention to all the information the body gives and not just the brain. My clients tend to be very cerebral. They tend mm. to be very in their head. Um, mm. And I'm trying to bring them down into their body. Great. Thank you. Um, so you wrote a book. I think you're editing it, right? I am. Uh, uh, <laughs> what? Congratulations. Thank you. And so, what was important for you to write about and uh, and say in your book? Oh, and what's gosh. the title of your book, too? My book is called Lifting Heavy Things. Um, and it's uh, the subtitle <laughs> Lifting Heavy Things Healing Trauma One Rep at a Time. And it's um, a combination of like self help and memoir would kind of go in either. I pull a lot from my own experiences uh, in each chapter, my own experiences working with clients, my own personal experiences, um, as well as giving, uh, walking people through the process of turning any sort of movement practice that they like and helping them even pick that movement practice into an embodied movement practice, the way I do strength training, right? But I realize that not everybody wants to lift heavy things, uh, literally. <laughs> Many of us have figurative heavy things we need to be lifting. Um, and I wrote it, I wrote it with a couple things in mind. The first was creating space for people who are living with trauma to feel seen, recognized, and understood. Because even though it is something that impacts all of us, I, I think. I, I don't believe we get through life without major loss, um, which is traumatic. I don't, it, it feels very isolating. When you are in a trauma state, you feel totally alien, even if you are surrounded by love. Like, and a lot of the time people don't really get that. And it's hard, it's hard to explain it to your loved ones um, even if you try, and a lot of time you're not even trying because you're not even realizing it. It's just uh, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, described it as feeling God-forsaken. And that was very important to him to use that word because you do, you just feel like forgotten about and alone. And actually it was reading The Body Keeps the Score, which is a very intense and <laughs> tough read, um, but it was reading that book that I recognized and like, I went, oh, 
okay, I'm not alone and I'm not abnormal and there are things I can do. This isn't a forever state. There's something I can do. And I just, um, that made, that gave me a lot of hope and really was a game changer. But that book is like a really tough read, I think, for a lot of people. And I wanted something that was going to be a little more friendly and approachable. And then you can get into the science, right? You know, and of course my stuff is grounded in science, but it's much more about, it's like a little gateway into that, right? Um, so I wanted to create that. And also for people who are working with trauma to, it also creates more space for people living with trauma to be seen by those people, right? By practitioners, by fellow trainers, um, by, you know, I think there are a lot of yoga teachers who learn trauma, you know, study different veins of trauma-informed yoga, and they're learning what's happening in the nervous system, but they don't know maybe the actual experience, like what it's like inside an otherwise healthy marriage, <laughs> you know, what's going on at home. And so I do, you know, I talk about my relationship and stuff in there. Um, and then the other thing is, yeah, really to be like, give people a toolbox. You know, I am, I started doing this, you know, trauma-informed strength training when um, I couldn't find anybody else who was doing it. Uh, people are really interested now, which is great. And so there are more practitioners out there doing it. Um, not enough. And, you know, I felt that there was no way I was going to be able to increase access, which is a big part of my mission, by just training people. <laughs> How many people can I see in a week, you know? Um, so I'm just trying to make the tools that I use um, really accessible to anybody who wants to use it and apply it to their own practices. Mm. You know, speaking of, uh, Laura, like, is there... You know, I know that everyone kind of experiences, there's different ways that um, people experience trauma and the effects of, you know, in their own system. But are, is there like a simple kind of practice? You know, you write a lot, and, right? And I've also heard you talk about like emotional reg regulating our emotions. And so is there like a kind of a simple practice that you would recommend for people who feel like they're kind of regularly getting emotionally dysregulated, you know? Um, are we talking about like in the moment or? I was thinking in the moment. Yeah. Moment. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I have a couple go-tos that are not breathing. That was my big thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I mentioned a lot of people have a lot of, they hold a lot of stuff in their trunk. So to be paying attention to your breathing, if you're really constricted there, and I'm speaking from personal experience, can actually be much more triggering. Yeah. So um, there are plenty of awesome breathing techniques that you can find out there, but I like to go for a few other other senses. Um, not that breathing is a sense. Um, I like to use, um, for myself, I use a sort of auditory. I find that that is the best. And it's a grounding technique. Um, it's like a grounding and or it's more of an orienting technique. It makes me feel grounded where if I'm spinning out because I'm really in my own stuff, I start by listening for sounds that are just outside of me. I'm already hearing all my own sounds. So, um, you know, if I was trying to get centered, I might want to be in myself. So I might start out and work my way in. But since I'm kind of in my own thing and I'm trying to 
expand. I listen to sounds just outside of me. So for now, like, because I'm wearing this headset and it's plugged in, when I'm moving, I can actually hear the headset creep a little bit. Mm -hmm. So like, very close to me. Um, and so I'm going to listen for that, or like, I can hear my air conditioner, I can hear the air coming through the vent. Um, maybe then listening for sounds outside of the room, but maybe just on the other side of the wall, you know, my husband's in a meeting on the other side of the wall and slowly expanding out. And so I'm hearing like the city, um, I have a lot of opportunity to hear a lot of sounds <laughs> mm-hmm. and just sort of widening my scope and also orienting, right? I'm making a map using sounds, what's around me. Oh, my headset's here. My husband's right there. Like, you know, even though I can't see him, I know he's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way I personally really, I find doesn't overwhelm me. And that's why I like everybody's senses have different relationships to senses. For me, it's something I can really access that doesn't overwhelm me. Sight works for a lot of people. Um, and I've seen different variations on this. I keep it pretty simple, which is like five things. Looking around your space and like remembering to look behind you too, like look for five blue things, right? And you're looking all around your room. And again, you're starting to make a, a map of where you are and what's around you. And then if you need to keep going, five yellow things, five red things. This is a great one with kids. Mm. Um, this is like a game. That's cool. Yeah. And play is really regulating. <laughs> so that's also really helpful for kids. Um, but these are examples of orienting through your senses. And those are my two big go-tos. And I do use those with clients in the gym. Um, and... Let me think. Oh, and the last one, which I also use, um, and this I got from my studies with uh, Jane Clapp. She does a lot about balance and playing with balance. So this is the kind of stuff I might use in the gym, especially like it is just like in between sets. Um, but I can see someone needs a little help down regulating before we go into the next set. But like we can still be moving around. Um, or it's even something I have been known to use on the subway where balance is being tested to challenge your balance a little bit. And that can be, however, there are so many different ways to do that, right? With clients, I might do it like, um, with some sort of like staggered stance type movement or, um, standing on one leg on the subway. I literally just try to ride without holding on because I have enough of a grounded base that I feel okay doing that. Um, but anything that it can't be so challenging, it overwhelms you, which is why I'm hesitant to give a specific example. Yeah. Different people have different abilities when it comes to balance. Yeah. A little bit challenging, doable, but it takes attention. Um, and trying to breathe through your nose while you do it helps too. Um, without focusing on the breath, but just trying to breathe through your nose, that uh, will allow your diaphragm to work better than if you're breathing through your mouth and using your chest muscles. So Mm. breathing through your nose and challenging your balance, whatever that means for you, um, can be very, it forces your executive functioning back on, which is what's turned off when you are getting overwhelmed. So great, thank you. Laura, how can people 
kind of encounter more of your work and your ideas? How can they learn more about you? Yeah. I, um, well, my website is lauracadari.com and I have, I'll have that linked below, but for everybody. Yeah. Thank you. And when you're there, you can sign up for my newsletter. A little thing will come up and say, ask you about that. Um, my newsletter is really, um, it's, it used to be bi-weekly and it's been a little like monthly lately just because I've been working so much on the book, but I write, you know, I share my blog posts and interviews. I know it's not really, um, just lets people know what I've been up to, um, and shares any sort of useful resources. It's really intended to be a way to share resources and that's sort of it. So that's how I use, um, my website, my mailing list and my book, which is available for pre-order talks about how to bring all these different tools and play more into your own regular life and how working this way in you know the gym or if you're a hiker or you do trail biking or whatever it is, um, whatever sort of any type of movement practice you do, how working these ways, working the way I approach fitness into your life in that way has a rippling effect and helps you with healing work outside of that too. Hmm. I can't wait to read it. Yay. <laughs> I can't wait for you to read it. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> you can't wait to get it out of your hands probably. I, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's, uh, I'm not so sure about that. I think I, you know, it's definitely, I'm really realizing, you know, I mean, you're a parent and I'm really realizing how much it is, you know, I hear people talk about that a lot, like a kid. I'm like, yeah, I want it to go out into the world, but I also, I'm like, oh, but I also kind of like having it yeah well it'll be both places when it's out in the world so yeah um laura thank you so much it was great to chat with you it was great chatting with you too